This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's UCTV Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter iTunes. at John Greathouse. Tonight's sponsor is Pay Junction. Pay Junction was founded in 2000, um, and it's disrupted the payment processing industry through its transparency and award-winning service. It's an all-in-one payment platform, and it was voted recently by Glassdoor as one of the best places to work in America. So if you haven't checked out Pay Junction by now, you should do so. And we really appreciate their support. It makes this filming possible. We have tonight with us Ning Wong. Ning is the CEO of Offensive Security. But what's so interesting is she's an academic. We're going to talk about that part of her life. She was a consultant at the, top, at the highest levels of consultancy uh, in the world, uh, and then she became a serial entrepreneur. Not many people have that background. Along the way, she became a seasoned executive with uh, profit and loss responsibilities in several SaaS and technology businesses. Prior to her current gig of leading offensive security, Ning was a, a C-level, held a number of C-level roles, including CFO and COO of HackerOne, which we'll talk about. She was also the CFO of Eucalyptus, which was sold to Hewlett Packard. And she was the CFO, CTO, and COO of Lynda.com, which also was a multi-billion dollar uh, sale to LinkedIn. I hope she got three salaries there. She should have. She worked for McKinsey & Company, as I mentioned, as a consultant, one of the top uh, consulting firms in the world. And she earned her PhD in physics from Berkeley. She came here all the way from Chicago. She's super busy, just took a CEO position. But she um, came just to talk to us tonight. So let's give her a very warm welcome. Ning is a very special person. I got to know her um, a few years ago here in Santa Barbara. Yeah. She came into my classroom, and I've had a lot of wonderful people speak in my classes over the years. I've been blessed. I always learn a lot. I took a lot of notes on your talk. I was impressed. And when I was looking at my notes and preparing for this, I was like, oh, there's so many great things that Ning said. So you're going you're gonna to hear these things that I, that I wrote down um, those years ago. So you, when you gave that talk, you titled it, Life is a Dream. I thought that was a wonderful way to, you were speaking to sophomores and, um, excuse me, juniors and seniors in college. Can you just tell us, like, why did you name your talk that, and what, what did you want the students to get out of that? You know, even today, sometimes when I think about if one day I ever write something, I will still say, life is a dream. Mm. Uh, you know, I grew up in China. I grew up in the time that's Cultural Revolution, and I never thought I would ever even go to college, let alone uh, you know, going to America, getting a PhD, and then later on completely changing my life and going into business. And now I'm a CEO of a company. And these are things I would say, it wasn't even in my dreams. But um, along the way, as you, know, as you continue to dream and your dream get bigger, and if you continue to pursue that, and you just never know where it leads you. So I say, first you got to dream, and then really pursue your dream, and it can get you pretty far. I think I can guess the title of your book. It's a, I mean, it's just a great, it's just a yeah. great way to sort of, especially when you're talking about your life. And yeah. I, I really liked it. So you mentioned um, being in China in the, in the late 70s. You were a teenager. So the Cultural Revolution is over. Right. And you learn that, wow, anybody can get into college if they just pass a test. That's right. How did that change not just your world, but the, the, the world of those people around you? I mean, that's a huge, right. huge change. That's its own cultural revolution. Right. 
You know, I think uh, I grew up literally during Cultural Revolution. When it ended, I was 13. And uh, during the time when I grew up, college only existed in fictional novels. Mm. I never thought I would go to college. And when Cultural Revolution ended, and two years later, and they restored the college entrance exam, where by taking the exam, that's how you go to college, and it still is the case in China. And uh, before that, it was really who your parents are and uh, how connected, how powerful they are. And that is what determined the kind of opportunity you had. And when it first started, actually nobody believed it. And uh, the first year, 1977, when they started this uh, uh, college exam system, and I remember among my neighbors, there were people who were married with kids, and they didn't have the chance. So there are all these people studying for the exam. And some of them were from families, according to the time, not good, you know, the, yes. by the Communist Party, good family background. Right. But they were very capable. So the question is, that would these people be able to get into a good college based on their own merit? And they did. You know, it was like, it was unbelievable watching these most of them were men at the time, and they got into top universities in China. And I was in a city called Zhengzhou, which is sort of a mid-sized uh, city in China. And to see these people got into universities in Beijing, that was like a big deal. Yeah. And I remember, I remember saying to myself, "Oh my God, you know, it really didn't matter who your parents are. If I could do this, I actually could go to college." That was uh, that was such a it felt a sense of freedom in its own way, right? It's like, now it's actually up to me. And right, if I could right. do it, I, I could have that opportunity. Right. So it was very liberating. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because that is a lot of how we think of America. Uh, yes. I mean, I know America's not perfect, and, and Horatio Alger is a fictional character. Not everybody that works hard succeeds. But we like to think that, and to some extent it is true. Yeah. Your outputs you know, often re- are reflected in, in your, your outcomes. Not always. Um, but it's interesting that that happened like, overnight yeah. in a huge country. Yeah. So your goals as a teenager, again, I took notes, <laughs> and these are in your words. One, quote, prove I am smart as a girl. I hope I'm not embarrassed. Yeah, no, no, Two, you're right. win math competitions. And three, go to Peking University. So it's interesting, as I read those again, I thought, well, the second two are really supporting that first one. So it seems like your, your real goal was to, quote, prove I am smart as a girl. I think you proved that, by the way. How, so, so when you look back as an adult on these childhood dreams and childhood goals, I wonder how, that, I wonder how you perceive them when you're thinking of your own children and yeah. their goals. Has that, that impacted you in, in, the way you've, you've been, in the way you've talked to your children yeah. about their goals? That's, that's a very interesting question. You know, um, I grew up at a time in China, and I think it, it may still be the case, and maybe it's quite universal. You know, as a girl... Uh, it, at least in my case, it was very often people said, you know, I was always good with numbers. So even when I was little, I was good with arithmetic. Mm-hmm. And the neighbors would tease me, and it's always giving me an arithmetic problem to solve, okay? And, uh, but then at the same time, there's people telling me, okay, you're good now, just wait. You know, just wait till oh. you are in high school. Just wait, you know, you won't be that good anymore. So don't try to compete with the boys, so to speak. So for a long time, there was this desire in me just to try to prove that, look, you know, I really can do it, even though I'm a girl. And, uh, you know, interestingly, to some extent, kind of sadly, that it drove me so far. I remember all the way 
you know, I started to study when I was 15, right? That's when the college thing started for me. Mm-hmm. And it was all about, you know, I really want to do the best. I want to compete not just with the girls. I want to compete with the boys. Right. And I want to show that I can do it. And I never thought about what I really wanted to do, what my passion was, okay? And, and then the thing trying to prove that I am capable uh, to do things, it drove me all the way to going, to going into physics. You know, at that time, and they probably see very much so uh, in China, Peking University is like the Harvard or the, the top in, Ch- in China. And at the time, uh, uh, I think now it's still the case, when you apply for college in China, you have to declare major at the time you apply. Mm-hmm. And in China, at that time, if you're smart, you do physics. I mean, so therefore, if you could get into a top school, a physics program, and that in itself is sort of a demonstration, you must be smart. So therefore, I tried really hard. I said, I want to go to Peking University, and I wanted to go to physics. And uh, I succeeded that. But a lot of that was to prove. And once I got there, that was another thing where, you know, it was full of number one from different states, we're from different city, and there's all these really bright kids. And I had people telling me, Ning, don't go, because you thought you're good. You go there, you can be the last Ugh. one, okay? Don't go to- Don't listen go. to those people. <laughs> don't go, you know? And they would talk to my parents, say, try to convince her, don't go to a place like that, it's too competitive, she won't be able to make it. Uh, so I entered in really nervous, thinking, you know, everybody's better than me, and I really have to work hard. And uh, the first two years was very tough because there were people who, let's say they were from Shanghai or Beijing, and they had such solid education mm, right, right. from the high school years, and they carried them really for the two years in college. Right. And it wasn't until the third year where sort of the playing field was even. And, uh, and then so, and I said, oh, okay, I wasn't so bad. I, I didn't drop to the bottom. Um, for me, it wasn't until I got to Berkeley. You know, uh, I got to Berkeley, and uh, I said, okay, I mean, I can't spend my life just to try to prove I'm smart. I got to figure out what I want to do. Is this what I want to do? So it wasn't until I got into Berkeley that I started to ask the question what my real passion was. Right. Uh, and the moment I started asking that question, I was totally lost. I said, you know, what does that mean to get a top score in the exam? Okay, I'm ranked number one, number two, number three. So what? You know, I can't do that. After, after classes are over, what does number one even mean? You know, and that was a time where I started to explore saying, okay, do I want to do physics anymore? Do I want to get a PhD? Should I, do, should I go to law school? Should I go to uh, engineering school? And I actually explored all of that. Should I just quit, you know? Um, and then in the end, I, I, you know, I looked into medical school, uh, and then I said, you know, nothing else seemed uh, as attractive to me as physics, even though I wasn't as excited about it, but I still enjoyed doing it day to day. It just, right. I couldn't see the bigger picture. And so I said, okay, I'll just get my PhD and then, and figure out later. And then what I did is the first. That's why you know when Don't I got my PhD. Don't jump ahead too much. Don't jump ahead too much. Okay. So you you asked a question about kids, how it impacted how I raised my kids. Um, I would say you know this is a I'm I say I'm part of a tiger mom. You know you heard about tiger mom. Um, there are things I I feel very strongly that's important that I want my kids to have, which are you know I I want them to have a set of values. I want them to 
play some kind of an instrument so that they can have appreciation for music. Sure. And I was adamant about them being good in math, whether they are they will do math or not or not. Because to me, math provides a good training for logical thinking, which I thought is a really good foundation, no matter what you do. At the same time, this is the, the other half of, you know, of not being a tiger mom. I really recognize the importance of social skills, you know, interpersonal sure. communication, uh, even team sports. Learn how to fail gracefully. Yes. yes. Um, you know, having friends. So there, there are things where uh, that I had learned over the years through working in the business, where these skills are really important, and sometimes I will say more important just than how smart you are. Because in the end, it takes a team to get stuff done, right. and to get a team to work well, you need those skills. So I was, I'm this mix where, when it comes to, you know, parenting. It's just funny thinking of that little girl in China that was so determined. And just so before somebody online in in some other countries really mad at me right now for asking Ning about her children, I ask men the same question. So I don't just ask women the question about, <laughs> I've asked men about, you know, how does this impact your parenting and your life balance and all that stuff. So don't get mad at me. <laughs> it's not a sexist question. Um, so, I, and I know that you've been in America for a long time. Yeah. I have a couple questions about China. So I'm not yeah. trying to make you the spokesperson for China yeah. or you're the expert on everything in China right now, but I thought I would take this opportunity and, and let the, the audience and our listeners maybe learn a little bit from you. So do you think to what extent... Uh, Chinese teenagers, girls in particular, women in particular, are are feeling differently. And let me just preface it by um, something that I shared with you in our emails. I taught a startup boot camp last summer here at UCSB. It was all Chinese students. I'm going to do it again. It was so much fun. We had about 40 students, four men, all the rest were women. And they were all about 19 to 21-ish, 22, something like that. And I just love the fact that they were, they were just going for it, right? You know, I mean, there was, there was levels of shyness, yeah. but the, most of them were just like, I'm here and I want to yeah. know about startups. And I'm wondering, how new is that? Like, is that something that you saw happening? Or? Yeah. Um, again, I grew up in China. And uh, I will say, you know, since the communist time, one great thing they did is that it really made the men and women, where the women feel they could do anything like men, even though you feel that they say, oh, you won't be as good as men. And for example, all the women worked. You know, after they had kids, my mom worked all her life. So as a result of that, I never thought, it never occurred in my mind if I want a career, I had to choose between having family or kids and the career. I just right. thought I could have both because mm -hmm. my mom and all the other women I know uh, among the neighbors, they all worked. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a job outside of the home. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I actually think China you know, is, 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 is actually easier on women, especially the women who want to pursue both career and the family. Yep. Um, you know, in, in today's age, I will say that, especially watching my daughter growing up here, um, what hit me really hard was in junior high, I mean, she literally will say to me, Mom, I don't want to be good in math because uh. if I'm good in math, I'm considered to be a nerd and I don't want to be a nerd. And I'm like, you can be good in math. That doesn't mean you are a nerd. So the, the amount of social pressure in this country, yeah. uh, for the girls especially, I think, you know, I see it from the, I, you know, from the eyes of being a parent and watching my my daughter, I think that actually that pressure is harder for girls here yep. than in China. Uh, you know, in China, 
I, like I said, I never thought about the fact that I had to choose and there would be a sacrifice. And even later on, when I, you know, when I made changes in my career and when I wanted to have kids, I have, you know, friends who are Europeans who say, Ning, aren't you crazy doing both? Uh, for me, it was just that's how life is, natural. even for women. Yeah. It's very natural. Right, yeah. right. I mean, there is that, 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 that um, pressure, peer pressure. It's, on, it's more on women, no doubt about it. But I remember in high school, I had long hair, and I thought yeah. it was cool. And I was a closet studier. Like, I got good grades, but people were like, you yeah. never studied. I'm like, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I'm like, right. At, late at night, I'm like, nobody will know. Yeah. Um, so so it is, it's kind of pervasive, I think, unfortunately, yeah. in a lot of public schools. Um, so, I, again, I know that you're, you've been here a while, but is there something about, is there something that would surprise the average American about the startup scene in China? Are you hearing from relatives or from other connections you have over there? Um, I would say, you know, when I go back to China and uh, I get exposed to both people working in great companies like Alibaba mm-hmm. uh, or uh, startups, uh, the, the young people there uh, are so... I mean, the energy is incredible, yes, okay? Yes. The energy, the, the creativity, and then the, you know, they, they work hard, and they want to achieve great things, and they think they can. There's probably a little bit less of a sense of entitlement mm-hmm. than if I, you know, like if I would look at a startup scene here. Yep. Uh, so overall, I will say... Uh, Ten years ago, for sure, when I went back to China, I will say most of the things I see there are copy from here, mm-hmm. whether it's a product yep. or concepts or anything like that. You know, it was, yeah, it's like I've seen it here and I'm seeing people copying it here in China. Yep. Now, it is really not the case anymore. There are product ideas, business model ideas, and operational ideas, even even. HR operational things that they do. Yep. It's the Chinese way, but it's creative. It's new. It's, it's things I have not seen before. And I talked to some of my VC friends, and then they say the same thing. They say, you know, there's so much creativity, innovation that's actually now starting in China, yep. and it's coming here. That doesn't surprise me. So I've, I've, I teach some, some of that ideation things in yeah. some of my classes. And the classic... Um, arc that most people go through is copy. Yeah. So look at the musicians. All okay. their early work is derivative ripoff, yeah. right? Combine. So then it's still a bit of a ripoff, but they'll take this artist and this artist and this artist to combine it, and then it's transformed. Yeah. But you can't transform. Mozart didn't transform without copying yeah. first and right. combining first. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that China went through that period of, oh, Amazon, okay, we'll do yeah. that. Oh, you know, Uber, okay, we'll do that. And now they're at that yeah. point of going beyond that. Yeah. And I, I saw that in our, my students. I only had two weeks with them, so I don't want to extrapolate too much. But in those two weeks, I know in their heart they felt like they could do anything. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's 90% right. of it for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and just right. believing you that's can right. get it done that's right. and being willing to work at it, that's, right. that's, almost, that's mostly yeah. what you need. Yeah. I mean, usually the Chinese culture and Chinese value is more practical. You know, they, they are less risk takers. But now with the young people, you know, it's... It's not that way. Yeah. Uh, so. Look out, America. <laughs> They're coming. Yeah. We'll take the first question. As someone familiar with the workforce potential of artificial intelligence, do you believe governments will have to impose restrictions on AI in the workforce in order to keep humans employed? Is there any point at which automating the workforce becomes unethical? 
super timely. <laughs> super, uh, super timely. Um, I'm not in the field. I don't know as much. I know a little bit. Um, what I can say is that the first wave of dot-com in the, in the 90s, you know, late 90s and 2000, there were, a, with every sort of innovation, major technology disruption, there's always the fear of yep. people losing jobs, okay? Whether it's the telephone that came and the internet that came, and there's always this kind of uh, fear. And then in reality, what happens is that the jobs get changed. It's different kind of skills. So you, so it's not like you won't be needed, but you will be needed in a different way, maybe even more so. And and I just think it's so interesting to you know when Amazon first came out, it was all about dot com. Everything's virtual. It's an e-commerce. You don't have a physical store. And look at what is happening now. Amazon having stores, right. having places you can pick up. So. And it's not that, it's only been 20 something years. It's been in the history of things. It's a very, very short amount of time. So, so my personal view is that um, marketplace is actually pretty incredible, a how it, make, it just works, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and then if you have the belief that any innovation in the way is actually a good thing instead of a bad thing, and then you have the mindset that you can always adapt and you can always learn, and uh, then there's nothing to be afraid of. At least that's my personal view. And then even I look at myself, you know, I go to companies every three to five years. I go to a different company, and then each company I go to, technology changes, even in that short amount of time. Meaning the tools used for communication, mm -hmm. even the laptop you use. I mean, look at how prevalent the Apple. Uh, Mac is, uh, you know, 10 years ago. It's not so. It's really for the artsy people, right? Now, you know, the trend becomes uh, from the last company, even to the company that I'm at right now, it's like if you really care about security, if that's really important, mm -hmm. you go mm -hmm. with Mac, mm -hmm. you know? And then, and then, you know, Slack, how it's very recent, but Slack is a way now to communicate at work. And so there's all these new tools that that it changes how you behave, how you work, and if you, are, you don't have the mindset to change and evolve, that is actually the thing that you should be worried about, not mm -hmm. so much a, 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 a wave of you know, disruption that's happening and what's going to happen. If you, can, if you can evolve and you can learn, and nothing can stop you. And, and, and following on that, some advice I give students oftentimes is be that person at your company that's willing to adopt that new technology or test that new technology. Um, I'm so ancient that PCs were new when I first started working, and I, I raised my hand and said, oh, let me learn that. And then suddenly, you know, yeah. two weeks later, I was the expert. I mean, just, right. it doesn't take much knowledge to differentiate yourself. So you were doing a good job of telling your story, but I pulled you back a little bit because I want to touch upon, I want to brag about you on a couple of things, but I want to touch upon a, a couple of the stops along the way. So I know that you scored number three in all of China on a physics test. Was that to go to the U.S. or was that to get into Peking University? What? That was to, go, to come to the U.S. Okay, so you, you went to Peking, you killed it, you did really well there, even though you were competing against maybe students that had more rigorous uh, education than you did. You had to take a test to come to America. You scored through number three in the country, in your country, in China. Yeah. Were you able to pick any school you wanted to go to? I mean, imagine most schools would have their door wide open to you. Um, I, came to, I came to the U.S. through a program called CUSPI, and it's a China-U.S. Uh, physics exchange program, and it was sponsored by a Nobel laureate, T.D. Uh -huh. Lee. It was a professor. Uh -huh. 
in Colombia, and the way it worked, the program no longer exists. I think it was in place for close to 10 years. Uh, because at the time, it was very difficult for Chinese students to come here without a sponsorship. And uh, so the way it worked is that the exam would be given in English by two universities uh. in the U.S. So my year, uh, it was given by professors from Berkeley and Yale. Yeah, okay. okay. And uh, you take this written exam, and uh, they would admit about 100 students each year into U.S. Ph.D. programs. And they got about 50, 60 universities in the U.S. to be uh, to agree to take on uh, the Caspi students. Mm -hmm. And by taking them on, at least for the first year, they need to offer either fellowship or giving them a teaching assistant or a research assistant so that they will be able to financially support themselves. And once you pass the exam in written, and then the, the professors and their spouses went to China and interviewed you, oh, okay? Wow. And I remember that was the very first time I ever had an interview. It's like, what is an interview? Because when, when I grew up in China, there was no interview. Everything was assigned by the government. You know, if you get a job, it was assigned to you, right? Mm. So, and uh, I interviewed with the professor and, the, and uh, his wife, and they wanted to know uh, what your English skill is, and then just, would you be able to live independently in, in the US? Mm -hmm. You know, would you be able to make that transition? Yep. And then every student at the time would be able to apply to five schools among the 60 that you can pick. Okay. So in my case, yes, I applied to five, and I actually got into six. So, so, <laughs> I remember that too, yeah, but I didn't. So I, kind of I, yes, I didn't include that in my questions. Yeah. But since you bring that up, how did that happen? Um, you know, I didn't. You know, in Peking University, there were very few women, just like everywhere in physics. Uh, in the U. But we didn't really have the affirmative action program. It just happens, okay? Yep, yep. Uh, in the U.S., I think, you know, uh, people really wanted to, uh, to recruit more women into science, which I think is a really good thing. And, uh, and then um, I guess they all know who these students are, you know? When I applied, they all knew who, who these 100 students were that year. And, uh, you know, Indiana University was the one I did not apply and they really wanted me, and they gave me a lot more fellowship, right, and right. Uh, you know, gave me an office and uh, you know, uh, an advisor. Um, but uh, in the end, I went to Berkeley. You made a better choice, but that's still very flattering. <laughs> it was. No offense was. to Indiana. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I just want to say this to you. I know you know this, but people often don't get to hear this. That was very courageous of you. That, I mean, just the fact that you did, it's hard enough to go to another country and sort of deal with all of the cultural and language issues. But to be a, a woman in a, in a space that was predominantly male and to kind of leave your home country, leave your family, and come over to a country that you'd never been to before, that took a lot of courage. Yeah. You know... Um, you may not feel that, but yeah. I feel that. Uh, for me, you know, I have done... You know, later on, we'll talk about what I did later. And I realized it's like I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and therefore, I wasn't as scared. It was like, you know what? I will figure it out. Right. And sometimes I look back, I say, God, if I knew all the things you know, I know now, would I have dared to make all those decisions? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't you know? have gotten out of bed if I knew <laughs> yeah. all the stuff. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but uh, I, I, I didn't know better. Uh, I had such a desire to come to the U.S. and to see what the world is like. And... Um, and I just thought I could go and figure it out. Yeah, you know? and you did. Yeah. So let's go back to Berkeley. 
Um, you alluded to this earlier, um, and this is a quote, I needed to learn how to be happy. So you're at the, you get your PhD, you know, I couldn't even have taken an undergraduate physics class and gotten a D, and here you are getting a PhD from Berkeley in physics, and so you decided to go to... Paris. Paris. Who wouldn't? So you did a postdoc in Paris. That's right. So how did that go? Yeah. Uh, I told you that I was really lost at Berkeley, right? And I thought about quitting, and uh, I couldn't find a better alternative, so I said I'll get my PhD and then figure out. And, uh, and then my advisor uh, was French, and, uh, and I met other French colleagues, physicists, uh, along the way. And I always had this, you know, as a kid, I always had this fantasy image that France and Paris is so romantic, you know, the language is so beautiful, and I wanted to live there. So I said, hey, you know, if I don't do it now, when would I do it? Exactly. And my husband didn't want to go. I was married. And I, 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 I just said, I am going to go. <laughs> so I got a job as a postdoc doing research, and I went. Um, I loved living there. I did not like working there. Mm. And I continued the journey to say, I thought I would be happy living in this beautiful city and you know, learning to speak the romantic language, eating those great food and <laughs> enjoying the wine. And I had so many vacation days. And I really <laughs> thought it would make me happy. You know? and, and I was there, and then I realized I wasn't happy. And the reason I wasn't happy was that I couldn't get as much done in my work. Mm. So all the way through grad school, I was really trying to kill my ambition just to learn to be happy. And I thought that was really bad for me. It's what prevented me from being happy. And then when I was in France, and I thought by living in the place beautiful as, as Paris, I would be happy. And uh, when I realized it, that was not what made me happy, and what made me happy is I, for, at least for me, I had to have something that I'm really working towards, I'm pursuing, right, right. And, and I feel that I'm learning and I'm achieving something, and that was important to, to me. So I said, okay, I, had, I have to accept that I, work is important to me. I can't just have a job. If I just have a job, in fact, it doesn't feel very fulfilling. Yep. And uh, so I accepted that. And I came back from Paris, and, uh, and that was when uh, I started to experiment with my career. So, but let's but just make it clear, you're, you're married, happily married, and that didn't end your relationship. No, I, yeah, I am happily married to so this year. She didn't my... just leave him in the dust permanently. <laughs> uh, it's my 30-year anniversary Congratulations, year, so, yeah. congratulations. Yeah. But I think we're fed this story from Hollywood or from somebody that happiness is laying on a beach with a drink in your hand and a good book or something. And you can do that for a while. I mean, I took time off, and it was yeah. it was wonderful. But it, 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 I wasn't happy because I was, you know, yeah. because I was sitting on a beach. Literally, yeah. you do you do need something. So for me, it became teaching. It became yeah. writing. It doesn't always have to be you right. know working two hundred hours a week. Right. But I, I don't know where that comes from. That myth that the only way you can be happy is doing nothing. It's like yeah. that's, that's that's one right. way to be pretty unhappy Correct. for most people. Yeah. So so that happened. You had a good experience. It wasn't what you expected, but you learned from it. So then you end up at Caltech, and you kind of lived my dream, which I still will do one day. You lived in Hawaii. You lived on the big island, and you were studying um, the stars at Mauna Kea yeah. Observatory. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What did you take from this? See how rich her background is? Yeah. It's like Paris. It's wonderful. <laughs> so you're on the big island. How did that go? Um, so I came back from Paris. I had to decide if I wanted to leave physics or I'm going to really figure out if I want to do physics, okay? 
and uh, uh, I got a job at Caltech, a postdoc, and uh, working for a wonderful professor, the best physics experience I had, uh, Tom Phillips. And uh, he was the, the director of observatory uh, of some millimeter telescope, 10-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. And uh, we need to build another some millimeter camera to be mounted on the telescope mm -hmm. so people can use to do observations. And I was hired to help build the camera. Oh, okay. And so I was, when I was interviewing, I remembered people say, oh, great, you know, another person to go to Hawaii. And I'm like, how can you <laughs> complain about going to Hawaii? They said, oh, Ning, just wait. Uh, so at Caltech, I was going to Hawaii once a month, and uh, we, I would see the ocean when we land or when, oh. and then when we take off. We slept at 9,000 feet, and we worked at 14,000 feet, wow. and you really had to get acclimated. It took yeah. me a week the first time yeah. I went. And then we worked at night, and we slept during the day. Oh. So it's really working. And the time we would go to the beach is when the weather is really bad. We couldn't do observing. And then we will say, okay, let's drive down to Kona, an hour drive, and we'll have dinner there, and we'll come back. Um, so, yeah, Caltech is where I spent three years, and we built this uh, camera, and uh, is, um, we collaborated with people from Goddard and NASA, and we got it to work in less than three years. We beat the competition by oh, five years. Nice. Uh, two students got PhD. Both of them are still in astrophysics, oh. one at um, Harvard, one at NASA Goddard. Uh, it was a great experience. I loved building that instrument. Again, it was a team effort, uh, both from the student side and the technicians and people in Goddard. We really had to collaborate, and they gave us a lot of help for us to, you know, detectors, electronics. Um, and then it was also where I finally realized I really enjoyed building products or building instruments, mm -hmm. you know, and we had to have detectors, electronics, uh, optics, low temperature, and uh, software. We have to integrate everything with the telescope um, uh, system. And, and I remember the first, day, first time we brought the, you know, the, the, the camera is about this big, this tall, and we shipped it to Hawaii. Uh, we put it on the telescope, and I remember that night so well. Um, we said, okay, you know, we worked for nearly three years on this thing, and would it work, okay? And the first thing we did is that we pointed to Jupiter, and uh, actually I think we first pointed to the moon. Um, we said, okay, that's a really big signal. If we can't see the moon, for sure it wouldn't work. Right. And that we, you know, you type the moon uh, position, the telescope switches, and then we can see the signal from the oscilloscope, and we were jumping, hugging, you know. And then we said, okay, great, we saw the moon, so now let's go to the next uh, smaller signal, but still from the sky. And we said, okay, let's go to the Jupiter. And uh, so, punching the Jupiter, and then we saw Jupiter. And by then, we were in tears. We were like, oh my God, oh my God, this thing is working. <laughs> and then the next thing we said, we got to get out of our system, and we went to the Orion, which is a nebula, which is a nebula, which is a pretty far away, and those we could not see with our naked eye, mm. and we had to integrate, get rid of the noise. Uh, we integrated for I don't know three, four hours. You know, there's me and two graduate students, right? We were on top of fourteen thousand feet at night, and then after four hours, we could see the Orion, and we were 
we were just so happy. I never experienced that kind of joy where you put your heart and soul yep. in there for three years. Yep. You don't know, right? You can't, no matter what you test in the lab, it's not a real signal. You have to go to see signal from the sky. Mm -hmm. So when you see movies, people in the control room, in the, you know, like a satellite mission, and people jump up and down, that's 10 years of work. So um, I loved it. I loved it. And, uh, but that was also the time I realized what I really liked and what I didn't like. I liked building instruments, but I didn't like using the instruments to do science with mm -hmm. it. I wouldn't sit there and think about which scientific research project I would do with the instruments I built. And people said, you know, Ning, you could have all the hours you want with the telescope, which you have to really right. apply right. to get, which is not easy. But because I helped build the instrument, I get sort of priority, but I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a project in mind. And that was what actually helped me decide. I said, okay, I should leave science because if I do science, I, I need to love science, not just building instrument for scientists. And, uh, and so Caltech is where I decided that I'll leave, leave physics. So, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think one thing for young people to take away is really be honest with yourself about what you enjoy. Uh, Don't listen to what other people, it's like, right. what, do you, what did you enjoy? And I like the way you that's described right. it. It's like at the end of the day, what you enjoyed was the teamwork, the camaraderie, building something that it might work, it might not work, but you're willing to put the time, effort, and energy into that's it and right. take the risk. That's what a startup's all about. That's right, that's right. I remember when I decided to leave physics, the thing I had to really fight internally was that Remember, the reason I went into physics is to prove that I'm smart, right? And in fact, you know, at casual parties, you just say, hey, I'm a physics <laughs> professor. As a woman, people will say, wow, you must be so smart. Right. So for me to leave physics, I actually have to say, God, that was just really my vanity. And I shouldn't live the rest of my life to fulfill that vanity. But at the same time, I have to say, it's okay. If I go to a party, I tell people what I do, they will be like, huh? And, uh, and then literally, that, that was part of the, the journey, right? I, I thought about leaving physics uh, when I came back from Paris, and I spent three years at Caltech. So it's really quite a few years trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I said, that's where my soul searching and be honest, like you said, yeah. being honest with yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think you should do and what the world expects you to do. You have to be very true to yourself for what you really want to do and what really make you tick, so to speak, because if it's just a job, it's a grind, it's very hard. You've got to figure out something that, that's more than a job for you, that you will really willingly do it you know, with your heart and soul, and even when the pay is not there, you will still do it, and, uh, and that will keep you going. So you, you did car parts for a few years, then you went to Bargain Network, yeah. and this kind of dovetails with one of the students' questions from a minute ago. So you got there, you, were, you became the CFO, so I mean, that's, you had a pretty quick ascent. Um, to the C-suite, you doubled the company's acquisition price by pushing um, uh, earnings up by 18%. So how did you, um, obviously math was, was in your background, but CFOs don't really need to be that good at math. Did, were you attracted to the finance role, or was that just a role you found yourself in because of your background? See, that's another thing where life, you know, you just can never predict. At car parts, I went in to do strategy because mm. when people leave McKinsey, they don't think you can do operations, okay? So usually they hire you in the staff role, meaning strategy, uh, business development, okay? You don't run operations. Right. But because of my physics background, I end up getting involved with the engineers about web website. Mm. So there I became a CTO, running engineering and product. So when I came to Bargain, I came in to run engineering and product. 
And then we uh, then Bargain was changing and brought in more leadership team. And Diana Wilson uh, joined first as a CFO. Then later on, she became president. And she saw my background in uh, McKinsey. She was like, Ning, you got to be doing things on the business side and not running engineering team. And uh, so she asked me to first help with the budget and with uh, financial side of things. Mm -hmm. and, and then she wanted me to be a VP finance. And I just said, no. I, I don't want to be a VP finance or CFO. I want to be a CEO. Mm -hmm. And I was worried that if I became a CFO and I will be pigeonholed into the CFO role and I would have a harder time to be a CEO. Yep. Uh, so I thought, I really I asked some of my mentors and they said, you know, Ning, it's not really that bad. If you're a CFO, you can still be CEO one day. And uh, so I reluctantly uh, took that that role as a VP finance. And I will say that, you know, I, I said this to Diana uh, many times, I, I cannot thank her enough mm. for her willingness to take a chance on me to do finance when I had absolutely no finance background and to have the faith in me later on I became a CFO. Uh, I could not have done what I have done in companies afterwards if I had not taken the CFO role because finance allows me to see business from the financial side and then coupled with my strategic thinking and my ability to influence operations. So I spend most of the time actually influencing business on the operational side, but finance gave me a view to see how to influence and where to influence that will have the most impact to the business. I couldn't have done that if I didn't have the CFO uh, you know, role. So for that, I am forever grateful to Diana yep. that I, you know, if it were up to me, I would have never done that, right? So, so my advice to all of you is that when there are opportunities presented to you, even if it's not on your career path, you say, you know, it's not really what I plan to do take opportunities. You just never know what one opportunity leads to the other. Right. For me, like I didn't want to be a CTO and I became a CTO. It helped me so much in being able to get efficiency out of operations. And I didn't want to be a CFO and then it helped me really learn how to have big impact in the business. Uh, so it, it is doing things by taking those opportunities that are presented to you. So Ning was in town at that time in Santa Barbara, small town, and she was known as like one of the best CFOs in town. They're like, if she's ever available, get her. Like, please get her. And then you went to Linda.com at a very at a time when they were going through some tumultuous changes. They really hadn't, you know, they had outgrown their current financial system. You came in. You had to professionalize that team get them, you know, really get them professional with their budgets, et cetera. You did that for a while. You tripled the company's margins while you were there. Uh, you worked at Blue Casa uh, for a bit. And then you came to, I'm, I'm shortening several, many years there. Um, so you continue to learn in those roles. And then you came to a company that was started by some UCSB professors right. called Eucalyptus. Right. And this is where you meet Martin Mikos. So let's talk about Martin. I've been wanting to talk about Martin. He's a wonderful human being. He's a kind soul. He's super intelligent. If you had to think of maybe two or three things that you learned from Martin, what, what are those things? Uh, Martin is a great leader. He's a great CEO. And uh, in a lot of places, you know, I would say, you know, I'm 
probably one of the hardest working person in the company. Yep. Uh, at Eucalyptus, other places, I see you know Martin working really hard. Uh, that is very inspiring for me. Um, Martin has uh, great integrity, great leadership. Uh, he never abused the power of being a CEO. Always true to his words, putting the company first. He is a big believer of Drucker. Drucker's management theory. Uh, if you don't know, it's good to look it up. And uh, he really practices that. Uh, and I think a lot of those have strong um, value in how to run a great mm -hmm. uh, business and be a great leader. So I watched him at three different places and I learned a lot. And uh, I am very grateful for the opportunity and he is a friend and a mentor, yeah. and uh, you know, we and you are, guys are still in touch. Oh, very much. Are, are so. there are there mentoring things? I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's too specific a question. But are there mentoring aspects that you find yourself when you're mentoring people now that that you're taking from him? Um, some some of those, yes. I think it's um, you know, over the years, I've learned, like I said, the company culture is really important. Having the mission. Be a mission-driven company is really important, and today, especially today, with a lot of millennials like you guys, you know, in workforce, the running a place with a lot of transparency and uh, figure out a way to really empower people, but at the same time, give them guidance mm -hmm. to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. All of these skills are so much more important today than I don't know, 15 years ago, yeah. and uh, so. So there's a new ways to do things. And, you know, Slack makes it easier to do a lot of communication in a much more transparent way. But when you do that, you can also overflow mm -hmm. with all the information. So how do you do that? You know, at HackerOne, for example, we had an office in the, in the Netherlands and the office in London and San Francisco, and then we had people working from homes. How do you communicate? And we had weekly AMAs, Ask Me Anything. Mm. And uh, an hour every week where the whole company dialed in and literally it is, the employees can ask anything and then either other employees or the leadership team would answer, try to uh, improve the you know communication mm -hmm. and uh, in my I've learned that you can never do enough you know and uh, I made a lot of mistakes earlier in my career and I see younger people uh, doing something similar and uh, um, I, I I'm very lucky that I have had mentors who really gave me a lot of good advice and I try to give it back, you know, in the way where I make myself available, right, uh, you know, right. at HackerOne, for example, if they wanted to talk uh, about, you know, especially, you know, when they are a few years, you know, they worked for a few years and they say, you know, eventually I want to run a business. How right. do I get there? Right. Eventually I want to do this. How do I get there? Now I'm a developer, but I actually want to do this. And what's the path to get there? So there are a lot of these th questions um, people have and, um, I didn't used to think that I could offer any real advice okay. until I start talking to them, and then they they find what I've done, you know, very helpful just to know somebody had done that. And similarly, especially for women, the question of balancing, you know, having kids and the career, you know, how do you juggle that? Um, so I I will say yes, you know, uh, it's really important to find mentors and. Uh, and uh, seek out, and a lot of people actually would be very willing to make time to help you. 
and don't be afraid, don't be shy, and uh, pursue your dreams. So. Yeah, I, I think that sometimes young people think that people that are older are, are maybe, they're just a little intimidated to approach yeah. someone maybe. And I, I know that you're the same way. It's like if the person's wasting your time, they're wasting your time, yeah. and you're going to get frustrated. But, but if, they're, if they have good questions and they're targeted and you yeah. know that they really want to learn, you make the time for yeah, them. Exactly. So differentiate yourselves when you get out there in your first job. You know, find somebody like Ning at the organization and, and really tap into that experience. You know, find, you know, do it in an opportune time. Don't do it when, yeah. when, when it's inopportune. But maybe early in the morning or maybe later in the evening when things have slowed down and just stop by and ask a few questions and you'll know quickly if the person's receptive or not. Yeah. Very few young people do that yeah. and take advantage of that opportunity. Um, so do that. We'll take another student's question. Hi, Ning. So my question for you is, given your PhD in physics from UC Berkeley, did that play a significant role in how you tackle business challenges from a growth-based mindset? Uh, specifically, how you work with Linda, like what was really your mindset kind of working in that hyper-growth startup setting? And how did you really contribute to the growth of that company? Yeah, I, got, I, I get that question you know, quite a bit. And then sometimes I ask myself, if I do it all over again, would I do a PhD in physics? The funny thing is that my daughter is getting a PhD in physics. You know, <laughs> I never thought that would happen. Um, I think uh, PhD in physics, especially experimental physics, um, I didn't realize then, and I look back, it, it, taught me, it taught me problem solving skills in such a great way that I couldn't even ask for it, okay? It taught me project management without even knowing it because in order to get the experiment done, you really have to think through all the things that you have to do and the sequence in which you will do it. And if you need somebody's help, how can you make sure you get the help in a timely way so your experiment can go on, get done in a timely way? Otherwise, you can't graduate. So these things, in a very subconscious way, you learn when you are doing your PhD. And those skills are incredibly uh, helpful. And then doing physics also, you have to be very analytical. You have to look at the data all the time and trying to figure out what's noise, what's real data. And today in the world of economy, in any kind of business, you've got to make decisions with data. And you've got to, be, you've got to know how to look at data and what's noise and what's not. And, and I think all of those, um, all of those uh, skills that are needed in business is something I learned a lot in, in physics. And what physics doesn't teach you is that, you know, how to think about strategy, how to think about pricing, how to think about those things. And that is something, uh, you know, I'm lucky that I learned those at McKinsey and later on practice in the different kind of startups. So I would say it's, you know, those kind of training gave me a really unique kind of background and therefore they become my unique advantage. So uh, I couldn't have done what I did at Linda if I didn't have the bargain experience. And I couldn't have done what I did at Bargain if I, if I wasn't analytical enough, if I didn't do uh, the technology piece, right? Because there I had to really say, how do I look at this business? And understanding how the business worked and then trans translating that into a financial model and then using data as input into the model and using the model to then help guide decisions. That literally was how we were able to double the purchase price at Bargain is by optimizing customer acquisition cost, looking at ads by ads, campaign by campaign, which one makes sense, which one we should spend more money, which one we should stop. And those is a combination of understanding the business, 
and then having the analytical skills and being able to make decisions with data. Um, and that's, that's what really helped me to do what we did at Linda. And that's the thing that people, you know, I get the question, and I ask it even sometimes, if you had a do-over, what would you do differently? Yeah. And there's certainly, you know, believe me, there's things I would do differently, but not, not dramatically yeah. different. That's yeah. the thing is it's often not like, well, I never would have moved to California. I mean, it's not yeah. things like that. It's more, well, I might have left this company a little yeah. sooner. Or I yeah. might have done this. But you need all of those steps along the way, even the unpleasant ones. And as we know, we, right. we often learn more from the unpleasant right. ones, even if it's what not to do. That's right. Um, so you, if you had that, that mindset that you're always learning, it's never a waste Correct. of time. It's never a waste of time. So let's take one more student question. Um, hi. Um, my question was, what are some of your experiences being an Asian American woman breaking into the STEM um, tech industry? And if you have any advice for fellow like Asian American women trying to go into that industry and business? Wow, um, that's a good one. Um, I think, you know, obviously I'm Chinese from China, so sometimes I tell people, I'm real Chinese, you know, I didn't <laughs> grow up here. And uh, um, I think, it, again, it's probably, I, you know, it's like I, I didn't know what I didn't know, and I didn't care. And, and so for me, I focused less on, oh, I'm a Chinese, I'm an Asian uh, woman in this country. I focused more on what, what I wanted to learn, what I wanted to achieve, and where I can find those opportunities and how I can get those opportunities. So for me, it was more important to find people who shared values that I shared so that we have the common bond. And so if I look at my network of um, uh, you know, my business network or, or my personal friendship, uh, network. I have people, friends that they are Europeans, they are Asians from China, Korea, or India. So it's really a mix. But we all have the common set of values. We all did these crazy things. We, you know, we changed careers, and uh, you know, we had kids and family, and uh, we juggled, and uh, we traveled, and you know. So uh, I would say that that um, being in this country as a foreigner. It is important to learn to, um, to get assimilated into that culture. So uh, even when I was in grad school, you know, I, I didn't just party with the Chinese students. I would, I would really, I, and I really mean that, you know, and I would, I would go out and I would have uh, friends that are Americans, right? And sometimes I actually get questions like, why did you do that, you know? And for me, you know, we're in America. This is America. So if I just lived in this uh, Asian or Chinese community, then it's not quite American experience. Uh, but then I very much also appreciate that. You know, you know I, I, I also have that community as well. And I think that integration is really, is really important. And that heritage is also very important. But at the same time, it's like you know, make friends with people from all backgrounds and you never know how that will, you know, that will connect you. Like, I go back to Martin, right? Uh, I remember the first meeting with Martin uh, where he, Martin is, you know, he had, a, I think he had a master's degree in physics and he's from Finland, right? And, and then when we talked, we spent two hours, we were just talking about life, value, what we valued, what's important to us, how we thought about businesses, and which companies we admired. You know, it's those kind of things that really 
at least for me, that draw me to certain people is I have those common things where I want to talk about. And as a result of that, it has, um, you know, it has helped me uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a great way. And then you know, now I go back to China, and uh, I have Chinese friends and colleagues, and they, they work in different places. And, uh, and I feel very connected with them. So, and then I bring what I bring, right, both from here being an Asian American, but as well as, you know, the business I've worked at, the things I've learned, the things I can pass to them. So, um, so I, that's how I have, um, I have handled it. And whether, you know, my husband is not Chinese, whether that played a role or not, probably it did, right? Uh, so... So, Ning, I have so much admiration for you. Your story is so inspiring. You've been so gracious with your time, not just on this visit, but in the past, and coming all the way from Chicago, and she just started a CEO job. Folks, that is so difficult. So I really want you to know how much we all appreciate you coming here. Thank oh, it's you. a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.